Welcome to Practical Christian Living. In the middle of that message, this is the birth of the church. In the, the middle of this message on this birth, in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. When we change our minds and we make things right with God, then times of refreshing comes from His presence. If you feel distant from Jesus right now, then maybe you need to take a minute. Ask God to search your heart. Is there something you need to ask forgiveness for? Maybe you've developed an unhealthy habit or pastime and it's time to make a change. Today's passage tells us getting closer to Jesus and spending more time with Him leads to times of refreshment. It's our prayer that you will be refreshed today. Stay with us for Luke chapter 19, verses 1 Father, through 10. Father, we want to thank you for your and word and the richness in it. We thank you that you have provided for us to continue to minister to the saints and preach the gospel, see people saved in this dark time. I thank you that for the church here that's been here for so long that sees the importance, especially in difficult times, of reaching out. Many are getting saved. Many are coming to Christ. Many are being fed. Many are being encouraged in their faith. Many are coming back to you. We thank you for our ability to do that. We pray that it would be even more. We pray that those that are giving would be blessed in their giving, that even as they are generous, that we, see, we know you will be generous back to them. We also pray that you would bless this Bible study. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Today, we're going to look at how repentance works, how repentance works. And, and here's the thing, whether or not you have never made a commitment to Christ and you, you need to, you want to, or whether you've walked with him for a while and you've allowed some behavior to creep in that needs to be changed, then knowing how repentance works is a good thing. But I want to let you know that it's not a religious word. It is a Greek word that we find in the Bible. And when we use the word repent, I can't think of a time that we would use it that we don't mean religiously. Preachers say, repent, you dirty, filthy Christians. You know, it's religious. Or we tell people, repent, you awful, horrible person, repent. But the word isn't like that. The word doesn't mean that. The word never carried those spiritual, religious connotations with it. It simply means in the Greek to change your mind. It would be used in, in normal sentences. I was going to paint my house tan. I bought the paint, but then I changed my mind and I went and bought light brown instead and painted my house. That word for change your mind in the Greek would have been I wanted to paint my house tan, then I repented, and I painted it light brown. That's what repent means. And it's used in Greek writings all over the place simply for someone that was, had made a decision, changed their mind, or had settled into something, maybe not even really thought about it, but then made a deliberate decision to do something different. So John the Baptist says, when he came preaching, he said, bring forth the fruits of repentance. And the fruits of repentance is when you change your mind and you do it. But you don't really change your mind unless you do it. We don't know if you've really repented, changed your mind until you actually change whatever it is you decided to change. The fact that I did paint my house the different color shows I really repented. If I didn't and just said, I'm too lazy to go to the store, 
I'm going to paint it this color, then I didn't really change my mind. I thought about changing my mind, but I didn't really change my mind. And so if there isn't the outward expression of that change, then there hasn't been any repentance. Again, a Greek word, not a religious word, that today has taken on a negative religious connotation. And I would like you to reconsider that. I'd like you to think about what the word repent really means, how we apply it to our lives, and to perhaps make sure that when we use it talking to people, that we don't use it in that negative way. First of all, we see that the word repentance was all throughout the church. From the forerunner of Jesus, John the Baptist, to Jesus himself, throughout the ministry of Jesus, to the beginning of the church, to the writing of the epistles on how, what church behavior would be, throughout all of the scriptures into the book of Revelation, we find repentance being taught in the church. There is no way that we could say that repentance is something of the past and we don't need to do it. We also in the church are often accused of easy believism. We say things, things to people like, raise your hands if you want to give your life to Christ, come to Jesus and everything's going to be better. He's going to make your life really great. We teach a self-help Jesus often and um, we're accused of not letting people know that you've got to change your life. The real truth of it is, is that we understand that. We understand that if I'm living for myself and I'm going to now be a Christian and live for Jesus, I have had to change my mind. And maybe we need to communicate that without using the word repent. Because here's my criticism of the people that criticize. And that's right, you open yourself up for criticism when you criticize. Here's my criticism of the people that criticize for easy believism. And that is that you just want to call people dirty. You just want to say, repent. We need to teach you to repent. Repent, you bunch of creeps. You bunch of stinking Christians, you repent. That's how they want it to be taught. But that's not what the Bible means when it says repent. It's not you got, it might be, you're a horrible, awful person, and you might be a horrible, awful person, but I'm going to guess. I think it's a good one. I'm looking around to see who I can pick out who's horrible and awful. I think it's a good one. There's not a horrible, bunch of horrible, some people raise their hands. Me, I, there's not a bunch of horrible, awful people here. Some of you guys, it's like, man, you're, you're really messed up. You need to repent. But for most of us, it's like, I do need to bring some things. I need to rearrange some. I need to get something better in my life. I need to understand who I am apart from Christ. And I need to make some changes. That's really how repentance should be taught. If easy believism is being taught, then it doesn't mean we need to turn into, you know, a church that calls people filthy and dirty and rotten and horrible in order to get them to understand their need for salvation. Maybe the church does lean towards easy believism but the answer is not to go the other way and to tell people how horrible and awful they are because we, we understand when we are compared to God, we're, we're wretches, right? We are black, we are dark. God is bright. There's no shifting a shadow in him. There's a lot of shadow in me, okay? We understand that. I know that. But when we're talking to people who are living in this world and they're comparing themselves to other people and we run up to them and tell them, you are a stinking, uh, awful, horrible, rotten person. Repent or, you know, you're going to burn in hell. Suddenly we are using a word that gets a whole different idea on it. And I would love us to really discover it as it is meant to be, as it's really been taught. John the Baptist, when he began his ministry, said, repent and make yourself ready for the Lamb of God. The kingdom's coming. Straighten out your paths, repent. When he was asked, what should we do? 
because he was in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, what should we do? He said, well, if you have two tunics, then give one of them away. I have 200 tunics. One of the benefits of being an empty nester, which me and my wife are, is I can put clothes in every closet in the house. <laughs> and I move them around. And, I, and then finally I can't take it anymore and I take it all down to Goodwill and I give it all away. I had so much last time I went that the lady literally walked out to help me unload it. She looked at my car. I had my truck. The back seat was just, she walked away. I was like, I guess I'm unloading 105 degrees all by myself as I'm giving these things away. So clothes are much more important, much more expensive in those days. But the point is well taken. If, if you have more than what you need, then help people. That's what John says. He says, if you have more food than you need, then help people. Then a soldier asked him, what do I need to do? And he said, well, don't intimidate anybody and don't accuse them falsely and be content with your wages. To a tax collector, he said, what should I do? And he said, well, don't take more than is appointed to you. Don't cheat people out of their taxes. That's how John defined repentance. Repentance was learning to live within your means, learning not to take advantage of your position. Th this is what John said when he was asked what it means. Jesus started his ministry with these words. He had moved from Nazareth to Galilee. The Galilee was a dark place. It says in Isaiah 9, a prophecy, the people who live in a dark place will see a great light. We know it was a dark place because Jesus cast out demons in Galilee. He healed lepers in the Galilee. He healed paralyzed people, blind people, beggars in the Galilee. Jesus did this ministry in this dark area. Here's what it says. And we're told in Matthew 4, 17, that from that time on, Jesus began to preach in the Galilee, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus used this word, repent, change your thinking. For God's kingdom is at hand. You're thinking the wrong way. It needs to change. Now, we could go throughout the ministry of Jesus and we could talk about every time the word repent is used. And it's a lot, but I won't. I want you to see that John started his ministry with repent, change your mind. Jesus started his ministry with repent, change your mind. And in the beginning of the church, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on 120 people in the upper room and Peter wanders out and preaches a message and 3,000 people get saved. And in the middle of that message, this is the birth of the church. In the, the middle of this message on this birth, in Acts 3.19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. One of the greatest verses, I got one more that I like better than this one on repentance. But when we change our minds and we make things right with God, then times of refreshing comes from His presence. If we are at a distance from God's presence now, if we've made decisions in our lives that aren't the best for us, maybe they're not sin. The Bible says lay aside every weight that weighs, slows us down and every sin that so easily ensnares you. So there are things that you can do that are like a weight to your Christian walk and there's sin you can get involved in that will entangle you. And if you've just now looking at your life and thinking I could be closer to him, I want to be closer to him and maybe you need to make some decisions. Maybe you're watching cat videos on YouTube that just came to my head. Maybe for someone here, I don't know. But maybe that's just something as simple as that. You're not watching anything horrible and awful, but you're just saying I could be a lot more edified if I started to understand some of the defensive arguments for the faith. And so you make a decision that changes. And so he said, repent. And when we get closer to God, times of refreshing have come from the Lord. When Paul preaches to the Gentiles, 
Now, on the day that the, the church was born, he preached to a lot of Gentiles who were Jewish by religion. You could be Jewish born and you could be Jewish by religion. You could be Gentile born and you could be Jewish by religion. And he preached to a lot of these Jews and Gentiles that had become Jewish and they all got saved. 3,000 of them did. Now, a little bit later on, the gospel is preached to straight on Gentiles. This was a radical change for the church. They were blown away. Jesus came to Jewish people and then Gentiles started getting saved. And so Paul preaches and says to the church in Corinth, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. In their repentance, they had sorrow, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And in verse 10, he says, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. See, a lot of times we mistake sorrow for repentance. Sorrow is connected with it. We do something and we feel guilt and we feel shame. And again, that's laid at the doorstep of the church. And I think maybe rightfully so sometimes, but most of the time not. Don't tell me that there's not guilt and shame apart from the church. The world has all kinds of guilt and shame. And I would suggest that it's not just environmental. See, they want to blame it on the church. So I went to church and I learned I got to be good. And when I'm not good, I'm guilty and I'm ashamed. Listen, there's guilt and shame out there that's way apart from the church. And I would suggest that it's a God thing. There's a God that exists. And so you are guilty and shamed when you do something wrong, not environment. People are like, oh, it's the environment you grew up in. You learned that it was wrong, but there's a real God out there. And just because you're sorry doesn't mean that there's repentance. Even, you know, when you're just sorry, you got caught. Some people are sorry they got caught. But remember that Esau sought repentance with tears and couldn't find it, the Bible says. And also that Judas betrayed Jesus and went and threw the money back at the religious leaders. He wanted to take it back. He wanted to change his mind, but he couldn't do it. And so he went and he hung himself. Peter on that same night denied Jesus. When he denied him for the third time and looked across the courtyard, he caught the eyes of Jesus who had been beaten. And the Bible says that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And somehow that sorrow led to repentance. So sorrow can lead to repentance, but sorrow doesn't necessarily lead to repentance. You can't just be sorry. There's got to be a change of mind that happens and that takes place. I told you about the Gentiles getting saved. When they first got saved, it blew everybody away. Peter had been invited into a centurion's house. A good Jewish boy would have never have done that, so God had to work with him first. And God got him there, and he starts to preach the gospel. He goes in, and he says, listen, Jesus came and was born, and, and he starts to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And just like on the day of Pentecost, some of them started speaking in tongues, and Peter's blown away. And so Peter says to the brethren, he has to explain it. They're all like, why'd you... Why'd you baptize Gentiles? And Peter's like, I went in. They started the spirit. And I said, God didn't deny them the spirit. How can I deny them baptism? And so I baptized them. And in Acts eleven eighteen, it says, these are the brethren. When they heard these things, they became silent. They're like, that's a pretty good argument. And they glorified God saying, then God has granted Gentiles repentance also. Note the term there, God has granted Gentiles repentance. This is an important aspect of this term because repentance works like faith. It is a response to the work of God. And just let me say that again. Repentance is like faith. It is a response to the work of God. The Bible says in John 6, no one comes to the Son unless the Father first draws him 
This means if you want to become a Christian, it's because God has already been drawing you. That's why Jesus says, you haven't chosen me, I've chosen you. You go, what? Well, I was the one who decided to become a Christian. Not only because God drew you. Had there not been any drawing, you wouldn't have decided to come. You want to change your mind. God begins to convict you in an area. Again, maybe sinful, maybe not. And you want to change your mind. That's granted to you by God. Look at, there's another passage. Bible says everything is, is by two or three witnesses. 2 Timothy 2.25. It says, this is talking about correcting those that are doctrinally different. That we have a different doctrine. We believe differently about something. And it says here, be gentle, be kind, don't argue. Those are all the things that it says here in this passage. And then it finally says this, in humility, be gentle, be kind, don't argue, and in humility, correct those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. And when we understand the Greek word, it makes even more sense that God might indeed grant them to change their mind and know the truth. But even that ability to be able to change your mind is given you by God. God grant them the ability. Lord, grant us repentance. Grant it to us, Lord. Help us not to be so stubborn that when we find the truth, we won't change the mind about the way we believe. One more passage, and I told you that the times of refreshing coming from the presence of God when you repent is one of my favorite. This is my favorite. It's the goodness of God that brings about repentance. Romans 2, 4. God's goodness. When God's good to you, you say, wow. When we had first started the church and we were over on Julian only, and we had gotten our, our sanctuary out to sit 300 people, we needed to buy chairs. We had rented fold-out chairs. <laughs> Very hard to sit in, especially when I wanted to preach for like 45 minutes. People were like fidgety. So we wanted to get chairs and we needed them and we didn't have the money for them. We were trying to raise money, you know, you guys can give a little more, we can get chairs, you know, you guys can sit on. And um, one morning, me and my wife got in a fight. It wasn't just like a little fight. It was an all screaming fight where both of us were like, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. and I left the house, and I slammed the door. She called me names, I called her names. We'd been married at this point for about three years, I think. We were newlyweds, <laughs> screaming newlyweds. And I'm driving and I'm just mad and I'm feeling convicted because I'm going to get up and preach and I'm yelling at my wife. You know, we're, we have a screaming match, all out screaming match. And um, I get a call and it's from Roger Barrier. Roger Barrier at that time was the pastor of Cassis Adobe's church. I was at this time like 26 years old. He was a few, I think a decade older than me. I think he was about 35, 36, but he'd been here for a while, had a successful church going. He saw me being so young. I think he looked at me when he first met me and thought, gosh, this guy needs help. Look at him. <laughs> and so he kind of took me under his wing and he had a lunch with me about once a month, sometimes every other week. And we talked about ministry and what we should do and what we were doing. And he was very much a help to me. But he called me up. He said, hey, Robert, listen, we're getting new chairs in the church. Would you like our pews? And I was like, no, God, not now. Don't bless me now. Wait until I do something good, then bless me. Then I can take credit for it. But after I had this horrible fight with my wife, you're going to bless me now? But see, it even made me want to repent and change more. It made me, it made me go, God, you're so good. I got to get this out of my life. I can't, I can't keep fighting with my wife like this and keep doing what I'm doing because God was so good. And here's what I think. I think that if I started going around the room 
that my story reminded you of some time that God was really good to you when you didn't deserve it. And that's the whole story of Zacchaeus. It's a guy that doesn't deserve it. It's a guy that Jesus points out. Look at it in verse 1 of chapter 19. It's the goodness of God and, and, and then repentance that comes from it. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. The first thing we learn is he lives in Jericho. Jericho in their day was a very wealthy city. It was a city that was perfect climate. It was beautiful. It was known as being a rich city. He was a chief tax collector, which means that he was a traitor. He couldn't enter into the synagogue. He was ostracized from the Jewish communities. We know that again because of writings in their day on tax collectors. He's a chief tax collector. And then we learn something else. He sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Now, we just learned that if you want to see who Jesus is, you're being drawn by God. So behind the scenes, God's drawing this man to see him. We also learn he's of short stature. How short was he? I know how short he was compared to people on the felt things that I saw when I was a kid in Sunday school. The average person in their day was five feet tall. Doesn't mean there weren't people taller. Doesn't mean there weren't people shorter. They were five feet tall. My wife asked me last night, how do you know how tall they were, the average person was? The answer is, they have their bodies, their bones. They put them back together again, and they, the average person was about five, male. The average man was about five feet tall in those days. So how tall was he? How short was Zacchaeus? Three and a half feet, maybe? You go, no, not that short. I think the smallest person in the Guinness Book of World Records is 18 inches. Lady, a little, a little lady. And they've got her next to the tallest man, I think it was 9'2". They're standing next to each other. Zacchaeus, maybe, okay, let's just say four feet. Even so, when this story is being told in Sunday school, he's shorter than most of the kids that are in there. Most of the kids that are in there are taller than Zacchaeus was. But this has, has something has happened inside of him, and he's become successful. See, his whole identity could be wrapped up in the fact that he wasn't very tall. He'd been made fun of, no doubt. His whole identity could have been wrapped up in that. But he became rich. His identity was in being rich. His identity was being in charge. He was the chief tax collector. He had become somebody, even though he was short in stature. So it says, so he ran ahead and he climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. He just wanted to get up and see Jesus walk by, that's all. This is near the end of Jesus' ministry. There's a lot of accounts, stories have been told about him. He just wants to get up in a tree and see him go by. As, um, but verse 5, when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and saw him. <laughs> what a great thing. He looks up, he look, there's, there's a little, little bitty guy up in that tree. <laughs> he looked up and he saw him. And he said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, how, how did he know his name? Had somebody told him, there's this tax collector. You got to see this guy. He's really short. He's really rich. You got, Zacchaeus is his name, maybe. Maybe this was supernatural. He knew the woman at the well had five husbands and she was living with a guy that wasn't her husband. He knew what was going on in people's hearts. Whatever this is, this is the God moment. I often say to you guys, if you're visiting with us, I would like you to have a God moment with us today. This is a God moment. When Jesus stops and looks up out of all the people in Jericho he could talk to, he says, Zacchaeus, yeah? Make haste and come down today 
I will stay at your house. Out of all of the people, he's going to stay at Sagias' house. All these crowds have come to see Jesus, and Jesus stops and says, I want to go to your home. As I, this is a moment of goodness towards a man who probably doesn't deserve it. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kgun 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.